Part two of The Secret of Everyday Things by Jean Henri Fabre. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Chapter four. Silk. The culture of the silkworm having been explained by Uncle Paul in one of his previous talks. Footnote. See the Storybook of Science. End footnote. He now confined himself chiefly to the structure of the cocoon and the unwinding of the delicate silk threads composing it. The cocoon of the silkworm, he began, is composed of two envelopes, an outer one of very coarse gauze and an inner one of very fine fabric. This latter is the cocoon properly so called, and from it alone is obtained the silk thread so highly valued in manufacture and commerce, whereas the other, owing to its irregular structure, cannot be unwound and furnishes only an inferior grade of silk suitable for carding. The outer envelope is fastened by some of its threads to the little twigs amid which the worm has taken its position, and forms merely a sort of scaffolding or open-work hammock, wherein the worm seeks seclusion and establishes itself for the serious and delicate task of spinning its inner envelope. When, accordingly, the hammock is ready, the worm fixes its hind feet in the threads and proceeds to raise and bend its body, carrying its head from one side to the other and emitting from its spinneret as it does so a tiny thread which, by its sticky quality, immediately adheres to the points touched. Without change of position, the caterpillar thus lays one thickness of its web over that portion of the enclosure which it faces. Then it turns to another part and carpets that in the same manner. After the entire enclosure has thus been lined, other layers are added to the number of five or six or even more. In fact, the progress goes on until the store of silk-making material is exhausted and the thickness of the wall is sufficient for the security of the future chrysalis. From the way the caterpillar works, you will see that the thread of silk is not wound in circles, as it is in a ball of cotton, but is arranged in a series of zigzags back and forth, and to right and left. Yet in spite of these abrupt changes in direction, and notwithstanding the length of the thread, from three hundred to five hundred meters, there is never any break in its continuity. The silkworm gives it forth uninterruptedly, without suspending for a moment the work of its spinneret, until the cocoon is finished. This cocoon has an average weight of a decigram and a half, and it would take only fifteen or twenty kilograms of the silk thread to extend ten thousand leagues, or once around the earth. Examined under the microscope, the thread is seen to be an exceedingly fine tube, flattened and with an irregular surface, and composed of three distinct concentric layers, of which the innermost one is pure silk. Over this is laid a varnish that resists the action of warm water, but dissolves in a weak alkaline solution. Finally, on the outside there is a gummy coating which serves to bind the zigzag courses firmly together, and thus to make of them a substantial envelope. As soon as the caterpillars have completed their task, the cocoons are gathered from the sprigs of heather. A few of these cocoons, selected from those that show the best condition, are set aside and left for the completion of the metamorphosis. The resulting butterflies furnish the eggs, or seeds, whence, next year, will come the new litter of worms. The rest of the cocoons are immediately subjected to the action of very hot steam, which kills the chrysalis in each just when the tender flesh is beginning slowly to take form. Without this precaution, the butterfly would break through the cocoon, 
which no longer capable of being unwound because of its broken strands would lose all its value the cocoons are unwound in workrooms fitted up for the purpose first the cocoons are put into a pan of boiling water to dissolve the gum which holds together the several courses of thread an operator equipped with a small broom of heather twigs stirs the cocoons in the water in order to find and seize the end of the thread which is then attached to a reel in motion under the tension thus exerted by the machine the thread of silk unwinds while the cocoon jumps up and down in the warm water like a ball of worsted when you pull at the loose end of the yarn in the heart of the unwound cocoon there remains the chrysalis inert killed by the steam since a single strand would not be strong enough for the purpose of weaving it is usual to unwind at once a number of cocoons from three to fifteen and even more according to the thickness of the fabric for which the silk is destined and these united strands are used later as one thread in the weaving machines as it comes from the pan the raw silk of the cocoon is found to have shed its coating of gum which has become dissolved in the hot water but it is still coated with its natural varnish which gives it its firmness its elasticity its color often of a golden yellow in this state it is called raw silk and has a yellow or white appearance according to the color of the cocoons from which it came in order to take on the dye that is to enhance its brilliance and add to its value the silk must first be cleaned of its varnish by a gentle washing in a solution of lye and soap in warm water this process causes it to lose about a quarter of its weight and to become a beautiful white whatever may have been its original color after this purifying process it is called washed silk or finished silk finally if perfect whiteness is desired the silk is exposed to the action of sulphur as i will explain to you when we come to the subject of wool cocoons that have been punctured by the butterfly together with all scraps and remnants that cannot be disentangled and straightened out are carded and thus reduced to a sort of fluff known as floss silk which is spun on the distaff or the spinning wheel very much as wool is treated but even with the utmost pains the thread thus obtained never has the beautiful regularity and the soft fineness of that which is furnished by unwinding the cocoon it is used for fabrics of inferior quality for stockings shoelaces and corset laces the silkworm and the tree that feeds it the mulberry are indigenous to china where silk weaving has been practiced for some four or five thousand years Today, when the highly prized caterpillar is dying out in our part of the world china and its neighbor japan are called upon to furnish healthy silkworm eggs silk culture was introduced into europe from asia in the year fifteen fifty five by two monks who came to constantinople with mulberry plants and silkworm eggs concealed in a hollow cane for it was strictly forbidden to disseminate abroad an industry that yielded such immense riches chapter five wool we live continued uncle paul on the life of our domestic animals the ox gives us his strength his flesh his hide the cow gives us her milk besides the horse the ass the mule work for us and when death overtakes them they leave us their skin for leather with which to make our footwear the hen gives us her eggs and the dog places his intelligence at our disposal but if there is one animal who more than another comes to us from the good god above it is surely the sheep the gentle creature that yields us its fleece for our garments its skin for our warm coats 
its flesh and its milk for our nourishment, but its most precious gift is its wool. From wool are made mattresses, and it is also woven into cloth such as merino, flannel, serge, cashmere, and, in sort, all the various fabrics best fitted for protecting us from the cold. It is by far the most desirable material for wearing apparel, cotton notwithstanding its importance, coming only second, and silk, valuable though it is, being very inferior in respect to serviceability. More than anything else, we clothe ourselves with what we strip from the innocent sheep. Our finery comes, from the most part, from its fleece. But wool is very far from beautiful on the creature's back, commented Claire. It is all matted and dirty, often fairly covered with filth. It must take a good many processes, remarked Marie, to change that foul and tangled fleece into the beautiful skeins of all colors with which we embroider such pretty flowers on canvas. Yes, indeed, very many, rejoined Uncle Paul. I have already told you, footnote, see our humble helpers, and footnote, how sheep are washed and sheared, and how the washing leaves the fleece white or brown or black, according to the color given to it by nature. White wool can be dyed in all possible tints and shades, from the lightest to the darkest, whereas brown or black wool can take only somber hues. White wool, therefore, is always preferable to any other, but, beautiful as it is when freshly washed, and relieved of all impurity, it is still far from having that snowy whiteness so desirable if it is to remain undyed. It is bleached by a very curious process, which I will now describe to you. You have all doubtless observed that when sulphur burns, with a blue-violet flame, it gives forth a pungent odor that irritates the mucous membrane of the nose and throat, and causes a fit of coughing. That must be what we smell when we light a match, Claire interposed. If you breathe in the least little whiff of it, it is perfectly horrid. Often enough it has set me coughing unless I was on my guard, remarked Emile. Yes, that is it, their uncle replied. Sulphur, in burning, becomes an invisible substance which is dissipated in the atmosphere and betrays its presence only by a detestable odor of the most pungent quality. Invisible, impalpable, like the air itself, this something that we know merely as a disagreeable smell constitutes nevertheless a real substance, the existence of which cannot be doubted by any one who has once been thrown into a fit of coughing by inhaling it. It is called sulphurous oxide, a new name to you and one to be kept in mind. It will be worth your while to remember it, as you will presently see. Sulphurous oxide, then, said Marie, is burnt sulphur, and it is something that can be neither seen nor felt, but that nevertheless does really exist. Whoever breathes it is immediately convinced of its existence by the penetrating odor and by the fit of coughing that follows. To what possible use, continued Uncle Paul, can we turn this disagreeable gas, this invisible substance that makes you cough worse than if you had the whooping cough? I will tell you. Despite its repulsive qualities, it is what we have to depend upon for giving to wool the whiteness of snow. An example will demonstrate its efficacy to you. Go down to the meadow and pick me a bunch of violets. The violets were soon gathered from under the hedge bordering the meadow. Then Uncle Paul put a little sulphur on a brick, set it afire, and held the bunch of violets, which he had slightly sprinkled with water, over the fumes. In a few moments the flowers, attacked by the sulphurous gas, ascending from the blue flame, 
lost their color and turned perfectly white. The change from violet to white was plainly visible to the eye. "'How curious that is!' exclaimed Jules. "'Just see how the violets whiten as soon as they come over the flame, and feel the sulfurous oxide, as you call it. Some were half white and half blue, but the blue has disappeared now, and the bunch is all white, without having lost any of its freshness to speak of.' let us now suggested uncle paul try one of the red roses there on the mantelpiece accordingly the rose was held over the burning sulphur and its red color faded away just as the blue of the violets had faded giving place to white much to the wonder of the children who watched with breathless interest this marvelous transformation that will suffice for the present uncle paul resumed what i have just shown you with violets and roses might be demonstrated with innumerable other flowers, especially red and blue ones. All would turn white on being exposed to the sulphur fumes. You will understand, then, that these fumes, which we call sulphurous oxide, have the peculiar property of being able to destroy certain colors, and hence to act as a bleaching agent. If, therefore, you wish to bleach wool, to remove the slight natural discoloration that stains its whiteness, you proceed exactly as you have just seen me do with the violets and roses. In a room with all its doors and windows carefully closed, the wool in its natural condition, that is, before it has been spun into yarn, is hung up, and a good handful or two of sulphur is set on fire in an earthen bowl. The room then becomes filled with sulphurous oxide, and the wool turns a beautiful white. Would wool that is naturally brown or black turn in that room full of sulphurous smoke? asked Marie no was the reply its color is too fast to yield to the action of sulphurous oxide only white wool is subject to this action under which it becomes immaculate but the same process the straw of which hats are made is bleached also skin used for gloves and silk wool varies in value according to the different kinds of sheep that have produced it some being coarse some fine and silky some made of long hairs and some of short the most highly esteemed, that which is used in weaving fine fabrics, comes from a breed of sheep raised chiefly in Spain and known as merino sheep. Finally, a goat that is native to the mountainous countries of Central Asia, the goat of Kashmir, furnishes a downy fleece of extreme fineness, an incomparable wool from which the most costly stuffs are manufactured. This goat wears under a thick fur of long hair, an abundant down which shields it from the rigors of winter and is shed every spring at that season the animal is combed and the down is thus detached separate from the rest of the hairy coat chapter six flax and hemp the inner coating of the stalk of flax and hemp as i have already told you footnote see the storybook of science and footnote is composed of long filaments very fine flexible and strong which are used like cotton in the manufacture of various fabrics flax gives us such fine fabrics as cambric tulle gauze and laces of various kinds hemp furnishes us stronger stuffs up to the coarse canvas used for making sacks flax as you have already learned is a slender plant with small flowers of a delicate blue it is sown and reaped annually and is raised especially in northern france in belgium and in holland the first of plants to be used by man for making fabrics, it was turned to account by the people of Egypt, the land of Moses and the pharaohs, 
for the furnishing of linen bands with which to wrap the mummies that have been reposing in their sepulchres for more than four thousand years so carefully indeed were they embalmed and then wrapped in linen and enclosed in chests of aromatic wood that to-day after the lapse of centuries upon centuries the contemporaries of the ancient kings of egypt of the pharaohs in other words are found intact though dried up and blackened by time but in spite of all these precautions objected claire surely the mummies must have gone to decay if they were buried in the ground for that reason replied her uncle they were not buried they were laid away in orderly rows in spacious halls hollowed out of the solid rock of mountains these mortuary halls to which dampness never penetrated and the air had but little access have kept for us intact swathed in their linen bands the bodies of these ancient egyptians uncle paul next took up the subject of hemp relating the history of its cultivation in europe from early times and describing its appearance with its small green flowers and its slender stalk about two meters in height he explained that like flax it is grown both for its fibrous stem and for its seed known as hemp seed which is used as a favorite food for certain singing birds from the seed are obtained hemp seed oil and hemp seed cake the latter being sometimes fed to cattle and what is flax seed good for asked emile from the seeds of flax answered his uncle is obtained by pressure an oil called linseed oil which can be used for lighting but is chiefly employed in painting for culinary purposes it is almost worthless being of no use at all unless very fresh and even then but of moderate value its principal use as i have said is in painting because of its quality of slowly drying and thus forming a sort of varnish which holds fast the pigment with which it is mixed the coat of paint that overlies for example the woodwork of doors and windows is made of linseed oil in which has been stirred a mineral powder white green or any other color chosen by the painter when flaxseed is ground it yields a powder much used for poultices being of an unctuous nature soothing to pains when hemp and flax are ripe they are harvested and the seeds are detached either by threshing or by passing the seed-bearing ends of the stalks through a strong iron-tooth comb the comb is set up across the middle of a bench on which two workmen seat themselves astride one at each end facing the comb then by turns they draw each his handful of flax or hemp through the comb thus separating the seeds from the stalks next comes the operation known as retting whereby the fibres of the bark are rendered separate from the rest of the stem and from one another the gummy substance holding them together has to be disintegrated either by prolonged exposure in the field where the flax or hemp is turned over from time to time or more expeditiously by soaking the stalks in water after first tying them into bundles the resulting putrefaction liberates the fibres drying breaking and hackling them complete the separation of the fibres from the useless substance of the stem and their reduction to a condition in which they are ready for use i will add that the fibrous part of hemp as you may already know is far coarser than that of flax the filaments of the latter are so fine that one gram of tow spun on the wheel makes a thread nearly one hundred and fifty metres long nevertheless this product of man's skill this linen thread that seems to reach the limit of fineness is very coarse indeed when compared with what is furnished by the caterpillar and the spider the highest degree of delicacy attainable by our fingers 
with the aid of the most ingenious machinery, is but an enormous cable in contrast with the thread manufactured by a despised little worm. A single gram of the silkworm's thread, as we find it in the cocoon, represents a length of two thousand meters, whereas the finest of linen thread of the same weight represents only one hundred and fifty. But even the slender filament spun from the silkworm's spinneret is incomparably coarser than the spider's thread, the achievement of that master artisan the very sight of whom evokes from you senseless outcries of alarm. To weave the airy textures intended to catch their prey, such as flies and gnats and similar small game, as also to line the dainty little sachets that hold their eggs, spiders on their part produce a sort of silk. The silk matter is contained in liquid form in the spider's body, and is forced out as required through four or five little nipples called spinnerets, situated at the end of the insect's stomach, each of these nipples being perforated with many tiny holes, the total number of which, for a single spider, is reckoned at about a thousand. Hence the spider's thread, as it leaves the insect's body, is not a single strand, but a cord of a thousand strands, although we commonly consider it of almost infinitesimal minuteness our finest sewing silk is a stout cable in comparison and a human hair has the thickness of ten twisted spider threads or in other words of ten thousand combined elementary filaments of spider silk how inconceivably fine then must be a thread that needs to be multiplied ten thousand times in order to equal a human hair in size the larger spiders that live in the woods weave webs of remarkable amplitude requiring each at least ten meters of thread or ten thousand meters of the elementary filament emitted by a single aperture of the spinneret. But to make the entire web, the spider uses up only a tiny drop of liquid silk, of which it would take hundreds of similar drops to weigh a gram. What machine of human invention, or what fingers, could spin for us a thread of such inconceivable fineness? End of Part 2